We are still giving other colleagues a couple of minutes to join us, so bear with us, be patient. We will start in about five minutes, five past six. Thank you. Right. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this evening's CSSGJ presentation. We are still waiting a couple of minutes for a few colleagues to join us, but then we will start punctually five past 6 p.m. UK time. Thank you. Okay, good evening, everyone. My name is Andreas Bieler. 
I'm one of the co-directors of the Center for the Study of Social and Global Justice, formerly affiliated to the University of Nottingham in the UK, but now fully independent. And it's my pleasure to chair, to introduce and to chair this evening's uh, seminar presentation. Now, Vishay Prashad is an Indian Marxist, historian and activist. He's an executive director of Tricontinental, an in the Institute for Social Research, the chief editor of Left World Books and a member of the Communist Party of India. Vichai has published more than 20 books, including The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, published in 2007, and Washington Bullets, published by Monthly Review Press in 2020. Now, the letter was described by the former indigenous president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, as a book that brings to mind the infinite instances in which Washington bullets have shattered hope. Vichai's most recent book was just published this August, written alongside Noam Chomsky and is titled The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan and the Fragility of U.S. Power. Now, the historian Paul Bule writes, Vijay Prashad is a literary phenomenon. And the writer Amitava Kumar notes, Prashad is our own Franz Fanon. His writing of protest is always tinged with the beauty of hope. Colleagues, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Vijay Prashad. Vijay, we do the usual thing here in the center, but you have about 35 to 40 minutes for your presentation. And then afterwards, we have another 40 minutes also for question answers debate. Looking forward to your talk. Over to you. Thank Thanks you. a lot. I'm really grateful to you, Andres, and to Tony, co-directors of a center that has gone pirate. Well done. And thanks to Oliver for um, all the um, uh, chit-chat before on Columbia. Very useful PhD he's working on. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, well, you know, I, I wanted to talk about the historical integration of Eurasia. The reason this issue is with us today, of course, is that Europe is in the middle of a war in Ukraine on the one side, and on the other, the United States has been rattling a very dangerous saber around the island of Taiwan. Um, what is happening here? I wanted to provide a kind of, you know, my kind of political economy of these conflicts. Uh, my kind of political economy because... These are narrative-based political economy for a talk like this. I don't want to get into too much detail. I'm always afraid, having learned lessons during the pandemic, the high point of the pandemic, that a lot of PowerPoint presentations on Zoom are extraordinarily exhausting and that Zoom is a good place to tell stories. It's not a great place um, for a lot of charts and graphs. Um, anyway, that's my own personal understanding of Zoom. So I'm going to lay out four points um, sequentially, and then, you know, we can have a chat about them. Um, the first point is, what is this war in Ukraine about? On the one hand, it appears to be a war that begins February 23rd, 24th, when Russian troops cross um, an international border, invade Ukraine, 
and a war begins. It's one place. In fact, the British media seems to believe that the entire conflict starts then, that this is a conflict driven by Vladimir Putin, by, you know, uh, their version of, of how they understand Russia and so on. Well, there's, of course, more to it than that. And one of the problems we face in the media today is a absolute lack of context. You know, medias don't like, media is kind of in a position, partly it's the form of the media, not just the content of the media, but the form itself, breaking news and so on. There's just no room for genuine context setting. Um, and if context is set, then we come to the content problem of media, which is, um, where there's a lot of ideological prejudices that come in the way of facts. For instance, it's unlikely that people go back to 2014, the events at the Maidan, um, even more unlikely that they look at issues like, for instance, the um, emerging and historical integration of Europe with the rest of Asia, which includes Russia and China, and why the United States has been compelled to intervene to try to delay or block this historical integration. It's very unlikely that that context will be part of any conversation. It's far easier um, to take the position that this is about Russian aggression and therefore this is uh, about beating back the Russians and so on. There's even less consideration, and I am not sure how much reporting there's been in the United Kingdom, but even less consideration of the fact that um, there was a peace agreement on the table, a draft agreement put in place between the Ukrainians and Russians in April, early April of uh, this year. That is to say, within, um, you know, about 60 odd days of the war beginning, um, this phase of the conflict beginning, um, there was a peace agreement on the table. Uh, we know that this agreement was there at the time. We knew about it because both Russian and Ukrainian Ministries had indicated that they were close to an agreement um, based on their rounds of negotiation in Turkey and on the border of Belarus and, and Ukraine. Um, then the agreement disappeared from public view. Um, interestingly, it was in this issue of foreign affairs, the magazine of the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, um, that once again brought back the agreement. And this was an article written by Fiona Hill. Um, and co-authored with an academic. But Fiona Hill is the key person. She was the uh, a high senior official in the Trump administration, very close to John Bolton, happens to be British, by the way. Um, in her article, which is an article against Putin, she mentions that there was a peace agreement, an interim draft agreement, um, which everybody had agreed to, sort of was like Minx 2, return to the borders and so on a piece of guarantees for the Russians, um, you know, no NATO membership. All of that was on the table in early April. And then Boris Johnson arrived in Kiev and he went on his walkabout with Vladimir Zelensky and the agreement disappeared. Um, even that has not been discussed much on the table. Why is it that the West, particularly the United States, but also UK, have been trying to block any kind of negotiation? It's far easier to keep saying that Putin is not a reliable actor. Putin doesn't want to negotiate. Actually, the evidence shows the Russians are willing to negotiate. Maybe now with even the battlefield losses, they are eager to negotiate. Um, and on the other side of it, of course, the question of reliability might be put back to the U.S., which, after all, unilaterally walked out of 
um, the Iran agreement, which they had worked out uh, with the Iranians making some really serious political concessions. But no, reliability is for others, not for oneself. Um, so n- none of that is really on the table for discussion. And underneath all that, in my opinion, um, is the question of um, the historical integration of of Eurasia, which I want to, of course, uh, spend some time on. Um, let's get directly to that historical integration of Eurasia. How does that happen? Obviously, you know, from very early period, from uh, the earliest times of humanity, uh, technology was simply not advanced enough to allow this large contiguous landmass to integrate. Um, you know, some early attempts at integration were quite ugly. The Mongol invasions of Europe, uh, the skulls of, of uh, mountain of skulls in Hungary and so on. This was not actually a very good kind of integration. But old attempts at integration included things like the Great Silk Road, um, which brought the Italians in direct contact with the Chinese and so on. There are very old connections between this large contiguous landmass, con- connections held back by the lack of um, of technology, the ability of people to move goods across land uh, easily, became easier to use ships to move goods than to move goods across land. It's quite a forbidding landscape, sections of it. And then at the time when technology developed that could have enabled the construction of a Eurasian um, connection, you know, trade connection, investment, uh, culture, commerce, etc., etc., the uh, period of colonialism sets in, where, for instance, China is in its century of humiliation, India comes under colonial rule. And so the integration that takes place is a kind of colonial integration. The first real modern integration of Europe with Asia is around the uh, social process we call colonialism. That was the heart of it, including how the Tsarist Empire colonized large parts of Asia. Of course, at the center of all this is the current Central Asian republics from Uzbekistan to Kyrgyzstan, but also um, you know, you can add in Dagestan, Chechnya, and so on. These internal colonies of the Tsarist Empire. So colonialism shaped the first um, modern integration of Eurasia. And then when colonial rule began to dissipate in the 1940s and 50s, including, of course, in an earlier period when the Soviet Union was created and these new republics emerged in the Central Asia and so on, In this entire period, um, as colonialism began to wane uh, to some extent, um, the Cold War sets in to divide Eurasia uh, for a long period of time. And so Eurasia was divided by the Great Iron Curtain that sets and runs through Eastern Europe. Well, in 1990, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the integration of Germany, you see um, integration start to take place, but it takes place on a footing that benefits the West largely. Um, I mean, look at how Russia is reshaped after 1991. Um, effectively, under Boris Yeltsin, Russia becomes subordinate to Western Europe and to the United States. Um, and then under the early years of Putin, Russia also subordinated. So this new phase of, of integration in from the 1990s whether it's um, the integration by India after 1991, the liberalization, 
China after it opens up the free trade uh, zones in Shenzhen and other parts of China and uh, uh, Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. That integration in the early period of the 1990s and up to the mid first decade of the 2000s is largely an integration subordinated to the West uh, through the process known as globalization. These countries come under the sway of the World Trade Organization. Um, the IMF plays a major role in the austerity and, 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 and investment structure uh, for these countries and so on. And they begin to produce essentially for a Western market. But what they deliver to the West, including Russia, is they deliver a assets of their social production from an earlier era. So Russia, the piratization of Soviet Russia that takes place, big sale of assets to oligarchs who park their money in the city of London, for instance. Um, then in China, the entire uh, highly educated, well-fed and, and, you know, um, and to some extent, um, you know, uh, highly uh, motivated labor force gets delivered to Western companies, including German companies, many of them centered in Wuhan, for instance, in Hubei province, where the coronavirus is said to have broken out and so on. India, of course, delivers itself to uh, the West after 1991, opening up again its labor to Western corporations, also South Korean corporations, important to add. Um, so this phase of the integration takes place with the with much of Asia subordinated to Western capital, mainly multinational capital. So you see, the early phase was where colonialism integrated Eurasia. The second phase was where the Cold War divided Asia. And in that dividing period, you had the improvement of the condition of social lives remarkably in, in the Soviet Union, in China, and to some extent in India as well. You may want to remember that when the British left India in 47, the literacy rate was 13%. Now it's close to 80%. That was a consequence of the state intervention into education from 1947 to 1991. So this third phase of the modern integration was actually the non-integration. It was the Cold War, which divided up um, Eurasia into at least two flanks. This flank... Russia, India, China were not all integrated, obviously. They were all highly separated. But they were able to develop a kind of autarky um, and develop the capacities of their populations to some extent. And then we come to an interesting period. Um, and this is the key part of our story, that with the world financial crisis or the opening of a new depression for Western economies from 2007 onwards, a new kind of attitude develops in Russia China and in India, um, which is key and has been remarked upon very little. In fact, interestingly, Putin, who had come to power as a um, as the person who was going to be the safe hands for the West to pick up Yeltsin's legacy, in 2007, Putin goes to the Munich Security Conference and he makes a speech where he says, look, the world doesn't need one single master. Very interesting speech made by Putin 2007. Inside the Communist Party of China, debate breaks out about the integration of China with the United States and whether this is going to be beneficial in the long term. It, in fact, is this debate that opens the door or the lane for Xi Jinping to come uh, into office in 2013. Uh, this debate is very key. It radicalizes a section of the Communist Party of China. You already see in Chongqing, 
the innovations by then head of the uh, Chongqing party, Bo Xilai, uh, later disgraced, but at the time opening up a road, talking about the need to improve the conditions of the lives of people in, in provinces outside the rim of China and so on. It's this period that you see Manmohan Singh, a um, uh, you know social democratic prime minister of India, make an alliance with the Indian left uh, and they create uh, a new big project uh, to improve the social and economic conditions of the Indian masses, including um, a massive, you know, program of public works called Minrega in this period. So you, you see a new development taking place in, in, in these countries, in Russia, Putin starts going after the oligarchs, trying to build up the internal capacity of the Russian economy and so on and so forth. This is after uh, the, the, what happens with the, with the Great Depression, let's call it, which is in a way ongoing. Okay, let's look at Russia first for a second. The United States leads, initiates three major conflicts. First against Iraq in 2003. Secondly, against um, uh, Iran in 2006, when it starts, intensifies the conflict over, um, over Iranian nuclear pro- project. And we can come back to that if you'd like. And third, the kind of absurd war against Libya in 2011. These three conflicts severely damage Europe's ability to source energy. Increasingly, Europe begins to get more and more reliant on Russian energy sources. It's very interesting, and and I don't have the answer to this, but it would be interesting for somebody to look at why Germany didn't intensify energy purchases from Norway rather than Russia in this period. Uh, Some of it has to do with costing that Russian energy on balance was going to be cheaper for Germany rather than Norwegian energy. But it's worthwhile looking at this. And I think there may be a politics here um, that could be interesting. Anyway, um, as a consequence of these wars uh, and so on, Europe becomes more energy reliant on Russia. Uh, That's one way that the integration takes place on the northern flank. Russian integration with Europe uh, takes place largely through energy. Uh, through the supply of natural gas and oil. And here, of course, Nord Stream 2 uh, is a key instrument. You know, if you look at the pipeline um, geography in the in the northern part of Europe, in the Baltic and so on, Nord Stream is not the only pipeline in the game. There's a Euro pipelines and so on going to Norway. Um, there are other pipelines that link um, Germany to, you know, the Scandinavian countries and so on. But the emphasis has been on Nord Stream largely because of the volume of energy coming from Russia into Europe. So that's the nature of Russian-European integration, largely despite the fact that Putin has already come out then for the first time openly criticized the United States in 2007. That was not to be on the table. What was on the table was this energy integration as far as Europe was concerned. China is interesting. China... Um, when China opened up to Western economies, people don't look at this carefully. If you compare India and China, they opened up to the West, Western capital around the same time in the late 80s, early 90s. You see, China made a much more, much smarter bet than India because China went to multinational corporations and says, you're welcome to come and use our high skill labor, highly motivated labor in Shenzhen and in Wuhan and so on. But for every investment you make, you have to show us the science and technology. That has to be part of the agreement. Later, China will be criticized for stealing secrets and so on. But that's actually not true. 
most of the complaints in the WTO have been dismissed. Why? Because China turns around and says, look, you signed an agreement. You were so desperate to get access to our labor. You basically handed over your science, not just technology. Because after all, science is, is, is the future technology. Um, and China had therefore, after the opening up in the 90s, begun to develop its own scientific and tech capacity in many areas of development, particularly high-speed rail, um, of course, in robotics, of course, in, in, um, in, in green energy and so on. Um, anyway, having built all this and having developed enormous surpluses from the export of goods out of China, um, China had both technological wherewithal and also investment capital. And as a consequence of the debate in the Chinese Communist Party to pivot away from the U.S. market, China started to do a number of things. One was to uh, create a kind of social transfer payment scheme in the country to build up an internal market. And that was part, that's what, what led to the eradication of absolute poverty. Secondly, China decided to develop new markets um, for both its capital and for its, um, and for its goods. Basically, that was the Belt and Road. Initially, one belt, one road, and then Belt and Road. Now, they've been going to countries in Africa, in Latin America, Central Asia, and so on, and saying, we'll invest, we'll do we'll infrastructure and so on, but we're not going to enforce austerity. And that was the great advantage of Chinese capital. Now, there are, of course, problems with any capital that invests uh, with an interest in, in, in making a return. Um, any capital is going to pose problems, but the difference between the IMF, you know, backed capital, private capital backed by the IMF, and Chinese loans coming from the People's Bank of China and so on. The essential difference is that the Chinese capital was coming without austerity demands upon the government. That's why it was appealing. And that's why 17 countries in the eastern part of Europe, including Italy and Poland, sign up for the Belt and Road Initiative, both because China has this high-tech stuff. They can build high-tech trains and they can build ports very well and so on. And also they are willing to invest. They are willing to become joint investors in a project like a port in Italy and so on. They are not asking the Italians to bear all the burden. They are putting money on the table. Um, and therefore, the Italians feel they would benefit, which is why they went into some of these projects. Um, also, the Chinese had developed high-tech uh, you know, telecommunications like 5G technology, put that on the table for Europe. And so this integration, energy from Russia, Technology and investment from China. This integration became a historical process from about 2007 or 8 onwards. It, it was a kind of inevitable process taking place. Um, and we saw, of course, India with its political differences with China and yet close ties with Russia get involved in some of these things in, in an interesting way. So whereas India didn't uh, become party to China's Belt and Road um, in fact, when China built the Gwadar port in Pakistan, India built a port in Iran um, that was exactly competitive with the Chinese port um, that was at the, the, the city of Charbahar in um, southeastern Iran. Um, so India was involved in that. But it's very interesting that India was also getting linked into some of these networks, um, again, largely through its, um, its, its relationship with Russia rather than China. Very close tie between India and Russia. Anyway, so the integration is happening apace. Now, I got to say that it's very interesting to look at the reaction by the West of this integration, particularly the United States. Why was the United States 
so bent out of shape by this historical integration of Eurasia? And why would it, why is it willing to go to any means to basically stop this, prevent this integration? Okay. Um, what is the evidence that the U.S. is upset by this? That should be the first thing to establish. Let's just take a couple of examples. First example, you will well remember when Huawei brought 5G technology to Europe, the United States appeared and said, don't use Chinese technology because they will take your privacy. They, they don't, they are not secure. Very interesting argument given that at the very same time the U.S. was saying all this, it became, um, it was revealed first by Edward Snowden that the United States was in close cahoots with private U.S. telecommunication firms to spy on people. But at that very time, it was revealed that the U.S. was had hacked Angela Merkel's cell phone. But again, yet it's the Chinese who are not to be trusted in the same way as the Russians are not willing to negotiate. The U.S., of course, always willing to negotiate and doesn't spy on your phones and so on. So that was interesting. But that was the first attempt to prevent Huawei. The war against Huawei was really important. Why? Because Huawei is actually provides not only Huawei, but Chinese telecommunication firms provide an existential challenge to um, U.S. Uh, telecommunications firms. So when Trump then enforces a trade war against China, effectively demanding that China roll back its technological advances at the time, one would have thought Apple computers would have dissented from this trade war because Apple products are all made in China. But no, uh, Tim Cook went to see the, the CEO of Apple, went to see Donald Trump and he said, go on with the trade war. Our problem is that uh, Samsung, the Korean firm, will benefit uh, from this trade war. But what Tim Cook was saying is Apple would like to have China Chinese labor produce Apple products, but China must not create a high-tech industry. They can continue to be coolies, but they can't be players in the high-tech world. That was the first salvo that came from the U.S. Starts with Obama, but intensifies with Trump. The second salvo is you again begin to see Trump in particular uh, go to NATO meetings and start excoriating NATO secretary generals, including Jens Stoltenberg, yelling at him in a taped um, you know, interaction, which you can watch on YouTube, and saying to Stoltenberg, why should the United States provide Europe with a security cover if you're going to hemorrhage so much of your social wealth to Russia to buy energy? In other words, um, the U.S. is not willing to, um, you know, to, under, uh, to underwrite your energy buys from, from Russia. Instead, buy energy from the United States. Instead of buying, um, uh, uh, you know, um, gaseous form of natural gas from Russia, which has a slightly lower carbon footprint, buy liquefied natural gas from the U.S. Gulf, some of it from fracking, um, which has got a much higher carbon footprint because you have to ship it across the Atlantic in a liquefied form and then you have to make it into gas again in Hamburg where they don't have the port yet for that, but they were planning to build it and so on. Um, so there was an anxiety. These are just two examples of the anxiety over the, the kind of integration of Europe with Eurasia. The Atlantic integration was hemorrhaging and the United States was desperate to prevent this integration of Eurasia and in a way to um, to reclaim Europe for the U.S. project. And NATO becomes a core part of this 
um, this assignment, as it were. Uh, NATO, with this aggrandized vision of global NATO and so on, becomes key in this. And we begin to see much more aggressive uh, use of NATO, um, both in the South China Sea, where European vessels start to go and um, conducting so-called freedom of navigation exercises, including the Queen Elizabeth II was sent with a big flotilla group. By the way, the freedom of navigation exercise is conducted uh, based on a UN treaty, um, the laws of the sea treaty. The United States is not a signatory of that treaty and yet conducts um, freedom of navigation exercises in the name of that treaty. It's a point that you know legal scholars should be raising and wondering about whether if you don't sign a treaty, uh, you can act on its basis. I, I think that's a very odd interpretation of international law. But anyway, so you have this um, this development of the integration of Eurasia. You see the United States coming in very aggressively to try to break this integration or to delay it. Um, and the two points which get taken up, one is Ukraine becomes a flashpoint for this. The other is Taiwan. It's interesting. Why doesn't the United States simply attempt to um, compete with China uh, on commercial grounds? You know, why can't the U.S. in uh, world markets produce better phones and outcompete the Chinese. You know, right now you go to Zambia, if you are in Lusaka in the marketplace and you look to buy a cell phone, 90% of the phones on offer are made in China by Chinese companies. Uh, that's the key thing. They are made by Huawei and other companies. Apple phones are just too expensive. They are about um, 90 to 100% more expensive in, in, in at the cheapest level, you know. Um, when you get to the more expensive, they are by quantums much more expensive. So people in, in Asia, on the African continent, in South America, simply not buying U.S. telecommunication products. They are buying Chinese products or they are buying maybe South Korean products, but largely Chinese, Chinese firms products, because after all, Apple is also in a way a Chinese product, um, Chinese firms products. Why not just compete with the Chinese, make better phones? You know, why not do that? Why not produce better green technology? Why not outperform the Chinese um, economically? Well, interestingly, this has got to do with the, the limitations of the United States. It's simply not able to do it. And look at this example. For many years, United States was, um, was uh, reliant upon the semiconductor chips produced in uh, Taiwan, in China, and so on. And now in the heart of this conflict where the U.S. is willing, it seems, to go to a kind of limited nuclear war with China, um, Biden is trying to onshore chip manufacturing for semiconductor chips back into the United States. Unlikely they'll be able to do it, but they're trying to spend money and accelerate some sort of chip program. The U.S. has deindustrialized on many of these fronts, you know, producing these exact things, high-speed rail um, you know, uh, telecommunications equipment and so on. They still have have access to patent. The intellectual property is important. But now that the Chinese have developed their own technologies, they're not paying rent to U.S. companies. So this is actually a direct existential threat to sections of high capital in the United States. And rather than try to compete with the Chinese on um, on on economic or commercial grounds, they are using extra economic force to compel the Chinese to essentially go backward so the U.S. can continue to be in an economically dominant position. Well, extra economic force to compel another power essentially to deindustrialize itself so that you can continue to hold 
uh, the cards in your hand. That's basically a definition of imperialism. Um, so there's that. Well, friends, uh, that's a little journey I've taken you on in this half an hour, a little journey on what I think of as the phases of the integration of Eurasia and how the attempt to block or to delay the integration of Eurasia has brought us into some serious military conflicts. If you want to understand these conflicts merely as, you know, the kind of insanity of Vladimir Putin, go ahead. But I don't think you'll get much out of that. That theory will not give you a proper understanding of this conflict. If tomorrow Mr. Putin dies of a heart attack um, and some other leader comes in, it's not going to change the historical fact that these processes are taking place. I wanted to identify these processes as best as possible. And by the way, you know, Ukraine, just to come full circle for this, at some point, Ukraine and Russia are going to have to learn to live with each other because you can't lift Ukraine out of Eastern Europe and take it to Iowa or to Ohio. It's going to live with a long Russian border. These countries are going to have to figure out how to live with each other. So they're going to have to come to negotiation. They cannot fight a war on behalf of the United States and its satrap United Kingdom. They are going to have to come to some negotiation. You should be encouraging that negotiation. And that's the reason why Jeremy Corbyn uh, and his institute, the Peace and Justice Project and the institute I run, we did this document together called Looking Over the Horizon at Non-Alignment and Peace. You can see this at the tricontinental.org. Please download this text and read it. Thanks a lot.